Welcome back to another episode of the Break Magazine podcast. We're over halfway through season two, which is very exciting. This week on the podcast, we are talking about the subject of how you go about building motorcycles. So what the limitations are, what some of the the good points are and how that whole process comes together right from the start to the finish. And we're doing it with a friend of mine who works in BMW Motorrad's product design department. So he has worked on lots of different areas of the project, uh, lots of different areas of BMW's project development over the last 10 years. We talk a little bit about that at the start of the podcast. And this is another one of those subjects for me, especially as a motorcycle journalist that I find fascinating. When we end up with that end product, it's always really tricky to balance making quite blanket statements about things being x and y versus understanding the limitations of what's actually possible or the reasons why manufacturers made certain decisions and to go into some of that in a podcast is for me really interesting obviously there's a few limitations about what we can talk about and what we can't talk about because we can't give away trade secrets uh that would be i don't think there's anyone that is currently working in or has recently worked in the industry who would be able to answer some of those questions publicly uh but yeah we get into some really interesting stuff we cover a lot of in-depth topic in-depth questions and i really enjoy this podcast i hope you do too and if you've got any other questions that you want to ask early separately from the podcast you can do so if you pop them in the comments of this podcast i can send him a message uh, and we can answer them so yeah without further ado i leave you in uh, in the hands of the podcast enjoy so welcome to the podcast um it is a pleasure to do this i'm quite excited about this this is a subject that always kind of uh i suppose gets me quite interested and and enthusiastic about these things because obviously we always see a product as as the yeah. end product and the differential between what we expect and think is easy to achieve and and the process that you have to go through to build a motorbike i'm sure are a million miles apart um, so just to start with, can you run us through what your role is with in BMW and what that typically entails, like what your kind of responsibilities are? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, my role is called I'm the product manager um, for a number of our bikes and um, I've been with product management at BMW Motorrad for 10 years now. Uh, having looked after various models, it all started back in the days with little bikes like a G650GS, I think a bike you quite well know and ridden quite a lot. Um, our mid-range, uh, starting with the on-road uh, F800R, F800. Um, to begin with, it was still the ST, later GT. Um, looked after the GSs as well, 700, 800. And then um, later in my years, uh, started to look after the on-road uh, water-cooled boxer models. Uh, and right now, believe it or not, I'm uh, looking into our big boxer i18 family. So a wild mix in there, and that definitely makes a job a dream job. Um, you're very close, involved with bikes, and you're involved over the the full period of, of the product. We're there with the very first ideas, what we need, where we need improvement, where we need change. And we, we, we form that and then we follow the whole process of development, sort of watch it closely, make sure that developers develop what we need rather than what they can. It always can be a, a challenge every now and then. I mean, gives an engineer a chance to create stuff and he will do. Um, and then at the end of the day, when we reach the phase that we're close to a market launch, um, we're there to prepare all the info for all the marketing um, facilities, for all the markets to have all the info about the product available. I'll be there at a press launch, um, spreading the joy about new products to journalists uh, and later on to the public, uh, being on fairs whenever they will happen again, hopefully, to talk about uh, product at Motorrad days, being close touch with press, with end customers. Um, yeah, kind of, um, it's, it's a wild mix, but it makes it super interesting. Mm. Yeah, I bet. I bet it's one of those processes that can be equal parts frustrating and rewarding to see like oh, a bike oh, that you've worked on for a long time come to to be something really good. Must be super rewarding yeah. process. So when you're when you're sat in Munich, you're planning a new bike. I imagine before you even get to that point of drawing anything or building anything, you have some idea of what your end goal is. So 
how do you go about deciding what the bike is that you're going to build before you build it? Do you do it off market research? Is it all off data? Is it just ideas get thrown around until someone goes, that's a great idea. Let's build one of those. And how long does that take? It's it's definitely a bit of all of that. Um, I mean, we're the in the great situation that we have a, a mix of um, highly experienced product managers and each each have their own sort of speciality. Um, if I think of my colleague Zepp, who's like super fast on the double R's and on race tricks and, and these kind of things, I have Rainer, who's super experienced with our GS world. Uh, and so on and so forth. So we have we have this mix of experience and of motorcycle experience in general in our team. Um, we have the firm abilities to come back to market research. Um, I mean, when we're a bit further down the road, we do product clinics, things like that. We sort of test first ideas against customers. We are in interaction with with press and feedback we get from previous models from the press. We're in touch with with customers. When I'm when I'm a weekend at the Motorrad Days in Garmisch, I got knows how many customers I talk to that weekend, and it's good because it's direct feedback. I get a feel of what they think about our current project and what they're missing, so I know what we what we might aim for for the next one. So, it definitely is is a big mix. And then obviously one big thing comes into account. Am I talking about product on our home turf? Am I talking the next GS successor or whatever? Or am I talking about product where I have to consider a customer that is new to us? When we when we just launched our R18 family, the big boxes, um, that's I mean, even though we have a lot of heritage that we can that we can show in in building bikes and building kind of I mean, in the beginning, all bikes were roadsters or cruisers, however you want to call them. Um, but this now is, is new customers to us with different needs and different aspects to take into account. So it always depends on how much research you have to do, whether it's home turf or new turf. So how long does that process go? Like you sit, you sat in a meeting and you're like, okay, we're going to build a new X bike. How long does it take you to get to the point where you're like, okay, this is the direction we're going to go. Are we talking like a couple of months? Are we talking years? it's i mean it's kind of an ongoing process anyway because we constantly watch the market um, and, and see what's happening out there but when it comes to to a specific project like like a new lead project for a family i'd say that whole process kicks in roughly about what four years before we we hit production and we definitely talk six months to a year depending on new turf known turf um, of, of really strategic work to set the, the, the targets right, to set the goals right for the project, to have a sound foundation to build on to then go into development. So once you've got that idea dialed in and you know where you're going, where do you go from there? Do several processes start to happen at the same time? Do you have people clay modeling ideas or drawing ideas? And do you, or do you work in kind of a more linear method where you have one thing has to happen before the next thing and so on and so forth? I'd say that pretty much depends on the phase you're in. The very early stage, obviously, it has to be a bit more linear because you want to build one decision based on, on the outcome of the decision finding process that you've just been doing. So in an early stage, it'll be you'll have the, the people look after like a first package. It's a first virtual bike buildup um, that is then matched with, with design ideas. So th these two kind of work in parallel and but work close with each other so that it matches right from the beginning. And then you come to a point that once you've sort of have your strategic phase done and you know this is what I'm aiming for, you have a phase where you kind of go for a proof of concept. Is all that what we want to achieve? Is it feasible with the technologies available, with, with the supplier network available, with our own capacities available? Until you then at some point reach a point where it's say, you know, look, we've, we've looked at the numbers. I mean, at the end of the day, we're a company to make profit, to make a business out of it, to um, my living depends on it. <laughs> um, so you come to a point where you decide on a project, is it a feasible project to go on? And once you hit sort of the, the serial production, obviously you have to develop, an engine has to be developed in parallel to a chassis, in parallel to the fairings. Um, you have to have the industrialization to build the bikes in, in our plant in Berlin. 
these things and rather spread out to parallel projects. But um, yeah, it really depends on on what what phase you're in. Does it does that uh, having that development? Uh, uh, sorry, that production capacity so close to your development uh, center, so, is, uh, so yeah. to speak, does that make that process easier or does it not really make any difference? Like a lot of companies obviously have their production facilities in mostly in the Far East. Now, if you say take Tram, for example, pretty much everything's yeah. made in Thailand. So does it make it easier for you to have that so close to know what the oh, capacities are? Absolutely. I mean, there's so much knowledge and expertise in how to produce the bikes and how to how to manufacture them that that is always feed fed back into the development process. I mean, you could come up with the funkiest ideas and then you stand there and you need seven arms and five hands to put that piece in a part. Now it, it has to go hand in hand. It really is um it's it's a close correlation of, of how the expertise from the plant and the development works hand in hand um, to have a product at the end that we can buy and produce and 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 build in a in a reliable quality and um, to our our quality expectations very good so um I think one of one of the things a uh, question I've got here is uh, is about kind of the change uh, a big change in technology so back in 2013 when the gs the 1200 gs came out it came out about yep. the same time as a ktm 1090 i i remember that when that system came it had an abs system and everyone was like oh the abs is really good and as an off-road guy i did not believe it i was like the abs <laughs> is not going to be good abs doesn't work off-road it's a liability and it, i can't imagine like my small brain wasn't able to wrap my head around how good that system can be and even now like what are we seven years later eight years later that yeah. system has evolved a little bit and a little bit and it's incredible yeah. now enduro pro mode on a 1250 gs this is the the capacity of that system is incredible i, I personally never turn it off anymore i leave it yeah. in enduro pro Everybody mode it's, it now, isn't it? it's amazing when it yeah. comes but obviously the the jump in technology went from this system being unusable to this system being good enough for 99% of what you're going to use it for is huge. Like that is a really big differential. So yeah. when it comes to doing something as complex as implementing those electronics that you've got in those bikes, when does that idea even get brought forward and how hard is it to, to produce that system? Was that a system or is that a system that was relatively straightforward because the technology had been done for a long time? Or was it an off-the-wall idea where you're like, oh, wow, can we do it's, this? I think ABS is a system we've been, or ABS has been with us for a long, long time. And uh, our development colleagues who, who sort of refine that ABS systems over time, um, they always have had the vision to go where we are these days at some point you were lacking technology in terms of affordable sensors that could give you sort of the accuracy in reading to come up with the system it was probably lacking computing power on the on the control units um, but to us it was a logic step to to step up the game when it comes to abs uh, we were the first to introduce it as standard on all the bikes uh, first to introduce it on bikes and to introduce it as standard on the bikes and you have to you have to be pushing and keep pushing uh, the boundaries and to us it was the next logic step it, on the outside I, I i remember myself like the first time riding the, the 1200 with with enduro abs and you were like on a steep banking uh down keep it on and then you won't be in trouble it's just amazing and you can everybody can start doing skits without feeling that oh the next moment the bike will just throw me off and um but it was i think the ideas are there and as soon as the technology allows us to to bring it to customer with sort of the level of sophistication that we take for our systems it's a next logic step for us so it's it's kind of a mix of when when technology is ready to be sort of handed out to the customer mm -hmm. being implemented in a way that everybody can use it and it doesn't play you any funny mm. so yeah i suppose that that kind of it's one of those things i still struggle to wrap my head around a little bit um 
just because it's so, it's just from the outside it seems like such a big jump so when you initially design a bike how much of that design is set right at the start say if you take like the f850 gs it obviously took a little bit long to come mm -hmm. from when the 800 was launched to the 850 was quite a big gap but when you released that bike was that bike and the design of it set or a bike set right from the moment you're like okay we've written the spec for it we know roughly what it's going to be or is that something that's evolving right up until you push the button and say okay we're going to production now no, it's, it's rather really that you, you have to come up with a set of target values that you sort of define the boundaries for, for the product for which in then in the development phase the product will, will shape. But um, you come up with, you have your key figures that you want to achieve and that, that you aim for. And then obviously, I mean, if within the development process, there can always be situations where uh, a certain test shows results that you need to refine certain things or that you need to push a few of these values in either side um, you have to adapt to that but there's uh, there's a rather set set um, of, of target values that you want to achieve when you set up for a new project so when you say target values do you mean things like suspension length seat height fuel yeah. capacity those things or are you talking much tighter values like fork geometry and offsets and swing arm length that kind of depends i mean if you're setting off for a new family where where you can sort of start on a on a sheet of paper ish it probably be a bit more leaves a bit more room for design rather than when i talk about the second model update in the lifetime where i just I know the parts that I can adjust and I know the parts that I will carry over um, mm -hmm. till I come up with the like, next big successor. So mm -hmm. it really depends on what type of change we're talking and what type of, of update we're talking. Okay. Um, so one of the other things that really interests me with this process um, is how you take a bike from being a drawing to actually having a bike that you're capable of riding because you know when we look at a production bike especially nowadays so many of those parts are manufactured in a really production level way so like a swing yep. arm is cast and it doesn't take five minutes to build a cast and then have a cast swing arm that's the length you want and if you want to change it you go and build a new part so yep. how how do you how do you do that how do you produce a prototype engine do you make everything out of cast and it takes a year to produce or is this a situation where you can kind of machine parts up quickly and test them and then kind of have some idea of what they're going to be like when you get to that prototype phase how do you build that bike it's, i suppose is the question how do you build I mean, that first bike these days it's amazing because first of all you can start off with so much simulation these days there's quite a bit of work done virtually before you even start going into the first hardware parts and then yeah i mean it depends some some things might be a sand cast part where i just have to find a way to get a, a cast part without having the, the time and the, the cost to machine my my final costs mm -hmm. um we are in a, in, a, in a time where we have fantastic possibilities with rapid prototyping and additive manufacturing these days. I mean, who would have thought 20 years ago that you could just start printing stuff in metal? Yeah. Um, and uh, these technologies are just a great source where we can quickly get parts. And we definitely have the advantage there also being linked to the BMW car development, which is just down the road from us. Um, there's a big um, additive manufacturing center where obviously they have the same challenge on the car side to, in an early stage, come up with parts so that we, we, can, we can sort of rely on these resources as well. And then it also is when we just, I mean, I had this funky example when, when we first launched the uh, GS, the, the 1200, uh, 1250 GS with the auto load leveling. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, you would take a standard gs and just update the frogs to begin with you would just get the new set of parts for that subsystem that you want to improve um and then you can just start from this and um yeah so in, in a very early phase definitely um prototyping parts with with all the modern technologies that are available in combination with simulations 
um, to then okay. come up with this first bike. And it's always amazing to sort of get on these really early bikes and ride them. It just feels really special. Yeah, I bet it does. And I bet it looks, or I, I, it's kind of hard to imagine what it looks like in comparison to a production bike. Like I've never seen a prototype early stage bike like that. It's not something as a, a press person or like even a public member you no. get to see, but I can imagine that there's like just bits that are all square and sharp and yeah, not yeah, finished absolutely. and just kind of guesswork. And, but I always I find mean, it really uh, interesting. There are things like, I remember that, um, what model was it? I think it was on the, can't remember which, which it was a project where we are defining on what is actually the handlebar shape we're aiming for. And so we have that set of handlebars where you can adjust um, the different angles of the handlebars in okay. various positions. Yeah. And it's amazing because I was sort of involved to, to sort of test ride from a customer's perspective, how does it feel? And we had the situation like on the fourth run, the guy would slightly by mistake adjust one side slightly different than the first the, the, the right was slightly different than the left and it's amazing how you feel this immediately yeah if yeah. tiny things like this are off but then you could really say okay i don't know the english terms but um whatever is the right mm -hmm. geometry for the handlebars you have these super adjustable prototype parts and once you've found the position, you can either laser scan or you can read it off these of these parts and then feed that into the further development process. Well, it's kind of where my interest in it comes from as well, because I imagine, you know, one thing I've learned from testing bikes a lot is that small changes make massive differences in the end result that you get. You know, if you move the handlebars yep. forwards by three mil or the forks down in the clamps by three mil, it changes the geometry completely. And, and I imagine you, well, you do have the same thing when you change the, the material that you're producing a part out of. If one is stiffer and one is less stiff, say if you go from a, a cast to a bill of aluminium part, it changes dramatically the feel mm -hmm. and the, the effect of the handling of the bike. How, how difficult is that change when you go from that prototype to, to those final production parts to make well, sure it's... that it still feels as good as it did when it was a prototype bike? As, I mean, we work towards set um, project targets. So it doesn't really matter. I mean, yes, obviously it'll, it'll make a change. If you take a production bike now, and as you just said, you, you move the, the handlebars and you move the, the, the forks, you, you'll experience a difference. But we've sort of set ourselves what we want to reach. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't really, it can't make a difference whether it's a prototype path. We always have to sort of take into account and uh, and um, sort of predict the, the, uh, the, the serious production we'll, we'll have on it and test it to the point that we, we achieve with a serious product what we wanted to set in the first place, achieve in the first place. So yeah, there might be a, a part, but the engineers are, are experienced enough to know that when they go from a, from a billet uh, triple clamp to one that is later on cast, they know the effects that they will have and they have to take it into account in the first place when designing the, the prototype part that it will feel like the serious production part uh, later on. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, when, you, when you have a, a, a bike, a new model and someone, uh, you have like a, a sketch drawing of it and you build the bike and so on. Is that design part done in-house in BMW? Because like with KTM, yes. they use Kiska a lot, obviously, quite well, famously. We have, we so. have an in-house in design. Mm -hmm. um, that's 100% in-house. Um, and um, it definitely helps. I mean, it's the road from us and there's it's a super special atmosphere once you set a foot into the design department and you see all these wild drawings about the future on the walls. And um, it's it's definitely good to have it in-house so that we can have a really close collaboration and the same sort of targets to, to what we want to achieve. So uh, I suppose as a company that sells bikes the the financial viability of a project must also weigh quite a lot on on that whole process you know i, I remember talking to uh to our, our friend chris northover about this before and and yep. when, when he worked at triumph it was always like a really heavy discussion he was a design engineer and that process of desi designing and choosing the exact parts you're going to do obviously when you extrapolate that out over twenty thousand models one washer that costs one p adds up a lot you know so if you change something yep. and so on 
that has a really big effect. Do you have to, when you go through that design process, do you have a set deadline right from the start of, okay, this model is going to production now, or is it a little bit looser than that? And you can wait until the model is right before you go to production. No, I, I mean, we definitely have a long range plan of, of um, which models we, we see at what point. I mean, it's it's never set in stone. Obviously, we watch the, the markets closely. We um, we adjust these plannings when necessary. When we see that a product is doing extremely well and that it will survive longer on the market, we can we can push it a bit longer if, if a model is struggling that we need to take measures, um, obviously. Um, but there's a there's a sort of base planning for this for sure because um, in a, in a big company like BMW you can't just um, yeah without a, a certain plan wait for things to just happen at a certain time you definitely there's things like regulations implementing implementing EU four EU five you can't just oh wait a six months for for that to <laughs> yeah, okay. maybe hopefully go away no you can't it's it's deadlines that are there that have to be met. Um, some are set by by company um, targets. Some are set by outside uh, outside regulations. Um, so yeah, and as as you've just mentioned, I mean, it's always these. It's a two sided medal for us. Um, we are all professionals, but we are all bike enthusiasts. Mm -hmm. So every now and then, there's decisions that, from a company point of view, you have to make that the bike enthusiast in you might see different, <laughs> where you would rather opt for the higher spec component, but that most riders probably won't appreciate. So it's always it's it's uh, it can be interesting once once you work in our team, you can't draw the line between your private motorcycling life and work. It just it sort of blurs one into each other. I can't ride a, a bike, any bike, without thinking about impacts it could have in comparison to projects I'm working on. I, but I, it's well, always, I, I totally get that. Every time I ride a bike, I like yeah. I can't not notice the like the little things because I spend a lot of time when I'm riding thinking about them. Do you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And um, but yeah, it's. Um, it's still it's it's a dream job to be where i am and then to have the opportunities i have so when you, you you mentioned at the start of the podcast that you're you're currently working on the r18 project and i th yeah. this is another area we were talking about this on the podcast last week with uh with regards to harley as well because obviously their new bike and just like with you guys the r18 is a massive step into an entirely new market right like it's not something yeah. that bmw have been a part of before and generally i think with bmw your your products that you currently make you're one of if not the the market leader in that product like the gs the adventure bike as a concept is pretty much invented by bmw like yep. you've been the forefront of that you've pushed the technology on that front how does that process change when you go into producing something that's in a completely different marketplace well as i said i think when you when you enter when you enter a new segment but that is not your home turf, you have to take your time to do your homework. You have to analyze the market. You have to analyze the customer and its need and and, and his and her needs um, to understand um, how the specific segments work. What are the segment rules that that make a product in the segment um, successful or not? And then you have to take this information and do you have to you have to match it with your with your brand vision, where do I want to be as a brand? Um, can I come up with a with a pro product BMW and also answer the needs of the segment? Um, and when all these things align, you can you can push forward to come up with a with a product that um, that is credible to your brand and will be successful in the in the market as well. So do, when you're in that process, especially in a new market, do you ever get to the point in development where, where everybody on the team knows that this bike is super good and you're sat there and you're like, our bike is as good as everything else? Or is there always when you go to market that like little bit of nervousness that it's not going to be received quite as well as you hope it will be? Well, it's... Um, if we wouldn't be convinced that it is a good product, we wouldn't go to market. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. To start yeah. with, uh, but obviously, I mean, 
there's other competitors and manufacturers out there who are doing a tremendous job and you must not lose respect for them otherwise uh, it's it's a it's a tricky situation i'd say um it's good to have the confidence in your product and go out there but still um respect whoever whoever has set a certain segment and and, and does good business in it mm-hmm. So uh, I think one of the other things that really interests me, um, this is a little bit off the kind of script that we originally had here, um, is is the use of components and like choosing which ones you use. Is that something we can talk about or is that? Um, shoot your question and I'll see if I can answer it. <laughs> so when you, obviously when you go into uh, a new model, you, you have to choose certain components that BMW don't make. You might design the spec yeah. even, I, I don't know that process but say you you you're like okay we're gonna we need some brakes for this or we're gonna choose brembo brakes or we're gonna choose haze brakes or whatever they are what what determines that uh that decision making process because i think it's really one of those interesting things with bmw is that uh, those things change quite a lot. Sometimes uh, a model will come with one brand and then another brand over there, especially even we see it quite a lot with tires that there's never one spec tire for, for every model. So yeah, what yeah. determines that process and, and that? I mean, takes brakes, for example, if you look to most calipers, they will say BMW rather than a brand uh, mm-hmm. on a manufacturer on the outside because at the end of the day, it's an overall system, and um, we test the overall system. Obviously, we test the, each component individually and see that they meet our requirements, and so that the overall system comes up to to the specs that we've set. Um, yes, there are certain components where people just sort of link a name automatically to a sort of assumption that it'll be better than others or not. Um, be it Brembo on a brake, be it Erlins on a shock. People automatically, they see the brand name and they have a certain expectation that comes along with it. Um, but at the end of the day, it would be, I think, from a company point of view, with the, with the kind of volume we're pushing uh, globally every year, it would be the wrong way to just rely on one supplier. If, if they start to have a problem, we start to have a problem. We would have all the breaks just from one manufacturer, one supplier, and they they get an issue we definitely have a big issue so it's always a trade-off to find the the right component that is manufactured to our spec for the respective bikes that does a perfect job for the bike it's needed on um, maybe there are some projects where you need a certain name on it um, to boost things but overall these components are sort of developed to our spec and then manufactured to our spec and um, it's bmw on there and that what counts at the end of the day that's, that's quite interesting. So with, with something like that, uh, generally when you say your spec, are you are you saying, okay, it needs to have like this much force or this leverage ratio? Or are you saying like, no, we've designed the caliper and we just need you to make it? No, it's I, that's uh, most time I think that's a collaboration. It's it's not mm-hmm. that we design every caliper, but it's, uh, it's a certain um, specs that we sort of uh, come up with in terms of... Uh, yeah, design maybe of the thing forces applied. Um, it's it's a collaboration, but it's it's rarely that it's just an off off the shelf part. I mean, yeah, a spark plug I can I can take off the shelf. It wouldn't make much of a difference. Um, but with many many other things, I mean, look at the the screws on our fairings. They even say BMW because we've sort of couldn't find in the industry standards the one that kind of matched our expectations for appearance and quality on the on the on the visible parts so we came up with our own ones and um, so just to have this level of, of being sophisticated about the finish of the bike i suppose that's a, a level of detail as well that is almost incomprehensible like when i think about a bike i don't i don't necessarily think about the screw head you know having like the perfect thing i care about like the suspension and so on but when you're when you're building these bikes do you have someone who's kind of almost that is a department that's dedicated to those sorts of things or is it something that you're all just kind of aware of i think it's just a it's a general mindset within within bmw it obviously set by the design in the first place um taking care that everything sort of perfectly matches and then that sort of spirit is taken over to whenever we design the components we we come up with with the best solution for the for the jobs at hand hmm. 
So um, on a on a different note, uh, one of the things that I think is in what, uh, I, and I don't know if if this comes into you this way, but it's a super underappreciated feature on on the twelve fifty GS. You have uh, the with the electronic suspension, it's self leveling, right? So like it measures yep. your weight as you ride away. Um, yep. How how difficult is that to implement on a bike that isn't a telelever bike? Because obviously, traditionally, like one of the things that works really well about the telelever is you've got two shock absorbers at each end. So it's the automatic preload adjustment is a bit easier. Like we see automatic mm -hmm. preload adjustment on other bikes. Is that something that's going to you can see coming to a conventional <coughs> fork or is that much harder to do in a in a forked bike? Honestly, I would have to refer to our chassis engineers to get a get a solid answer for that one. Um, this is a detail. I'm just happy and, and impressed. I was I remember the first day I rode that auto load leveling. Um, I was given a GS um, before it was launched. I was not told it's in there, and I was told to meet a colleague who wanted an opinion from a a bit taller, a bit heavier guy for the system. Uh, on an off-road facility so he just told me oh be there thursday morning 9 a.m and i'll meet you there and i rode out there and it's like my third thing was like have i just not ridden the boxer gs for too long is it I, I just forgot how how good it felt and i just i felt like on rails shooting out there and then we swapped street tires for noblies and after an hour or so, I was completely blown. It was like, yeah, you've just ridden the auto load leveling in a, in a in a fairly early stage, but already on a on a on a very good setup. Um, I can't really tell you how how much it takes to to adjust it to the other bikes, but it's it's super exciting to ride these things from an early stage and get feedback on them. Uh, yeah, I mean, I had exactly the same experience as you. I I couldn't believe how nice it felt no matter what changed what parameters a bike always feels the same and i think it's even better on the sport suspension version where you have a bit more travel yeah. a bit stiffer uh, yeah. springs and it just yeah it's just one of those things i think is super underrated in in the handling characteristics of the bike it makes it handle so well on road as a result even when you've got the taller version it yeah it's uh, i mean to, to me it was it was i was about an hour from munich away and i did what 200 kilometers per hour on the motorway to get out there then with some twisty countryside roads which mm -hmm. i took definitely way too fast <laughs> and uh, and then we changed it for noblies and it just worked perfectly i could jump that thing i could i could ride gnarly uphills downhills everything loose gravel sand and it was just blown that it would do all of that with the same chassis mm. without me adjusting much it's just it was all there just on auto and it just did its job yeah it's unbelievable um so one of the other things that really interests me about motorbikes and especially as like we've started doing this series called retro versus modern and we were talking about it earlier as well you've got uh, uh an r80 that you own one of the most interesting things for me is how reliable motorbikes are now. Even from when I was a kid and I started riding dirt bikes, I had to work on them all the time to keep them running. And yep. in 2021, I like even with a dirt bike, I almost don't need to do that much. You know, the parts that wear out are not the the manufactured parts; they're wear parts, and it really yep. it fascinates me how that development happens how do you how do you test reliability as a manufacturer how do you put the miles in how do you figure out what parts are going to break and what's the most difficult part of reliability development tricky one i mean we definitely we we set kind of a a, a target for the durability of, of of the bike overall and that sort of breaks down into components and i mean there are components where you have test rigs and um, like shakers and the lot and the components will do their miles on a test rig mm -hmm. uh, and you just um, you take the, the pattern that they are sort of stressed with from real life data that you have from from riding so that it compares to what it stress would be like when they are ridden and they have to do a certain hours on on test tricks to things but then obviously as soon as we have like the first very first production bikes they are taking into intensive um intensive testing in terms of being ridden in 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 a set defined of of um rider profiles that have to be achieved without any failure to to be the bike signed off for serious production so 
I think it's it's a mix of more reliable materials these days, definitely. Um, production facilities that can produce to a, a much tighter spec, a much tighter tolerance. Um, and all that overall results in a more reliable product. Yeah, it's um, it's very impressive. Apart from you know, obviously parts still fail occasionally, but generally things are are very very reliable. And it's kind of I don't know, it's quite as a adventure bike thing. That's also quite nice, to, you know, to know. Yeah, that absolutely. For the most I mean, part, I can probably ride this bike a long way. It's probably not going to yeah. work. And that's that. I think the impressive bit is that that's kind of spread across the industry as well, right? Like it's not. No, absolutely. absolutely. Not just a, a BMW thing. Like most, for the most part, the the good quality bikes seem to last a long time some of them yeah i mean when i i picked up that r100 in in wales and i rode it home to munich and well luckily nothing failed on it but uh, you definitely have a different feel you check for any oil coming out on a a 30 year old bike which you wouldn't do on a modern bike you just hop on there and you you go for it and um no but it's it's uh, yeah it's it's especially on the adventure bikes amazing to have it these days you can just go out and enjoy the ride So when you're when you're early in that development phase, how and you're trying to decide what you are going to do with your bikes, do you get all the other manufacturers' bikes in the competitor bikes and ride those and and use that data a little bit to develop your kind of direction, or is it something that's a little bit more just off your? Wait, it's, I mean, I'd be surprised if any manufacturer doesn't ride uh, the competitors bikes i mean we're no different uh we're definitely in an, in an early phase uh, define who we're up against and you can only know what you're up against if you've ridden and experienced it um and so yeah we definitely we, we have a look but at the end of the day it's it's good to know what's out there but we still have to go with the bmw way with the product whether we kind of want to come up with um, but it's definitely good good to know what what the others are uh, are up with at the time. But you always have to keep in mind you can only judge today's product, uh, but you're talking product a couple of years down the road. Mm-hmm. So you know what you're up against today, and you have to make sure that they won't sleep till no, your next product comes out. So, well, I'm sure we've had that recently in adventure bikes as well with the the 790 and the Tenere 700 and so on. I, I that was uh, one of those, uh, and just even more recently with the I don't know if you saw it, but the 1290 KTM Adventure R, which is a really yeah. long name, just came out as well. But like almost no one knew that was coming, and everybody's known the Harley was coming for about seven years from yeah. when they first started talking the same with the Tenere 700 it must be really uh almost a little bit scary like nerve-wracking as a manufacturer when you're over here producing your bike and then someone else just drops something like the 790r when it first got announced was like i, I don't even think anyone knew that they were planning to do that and then yeah. all of a sudden all of yamaha's wind is taken out of the sails that must be a really stressful process to to oh it can be for sure but you always have to expect the unexpected out there and and that keeps the, the whole game interesting doesn't mm. it so uh, i don't know if this is another one of those questions you can answer um but obviously in the la- like the last 15 years or so the apart from the electronic development that we've already seen i generally think the improvement in motorbikes is quite incremental do you know each year we see a little bit better a little bit better chassis get better materials get better suspension is generally a bit better brakes are better and when when i've been riding like bikes that are to like model year 2001 2002 those bikes are still really good and the gap is not as big as maybe you think it is where do you mm-hmm. where do you see the biggest developments coming now for the future of motorcycles tricky one to answer i don't want to give away too much uh, fancy ideas that we are having i mean i'm I'm very sure that still the whole sort of vehicle rider interaction in terms of uh, electronics in terms of adjustability of the bike um, also all the infotainment things that are kind of coming into bikes more and more the, the recent years that they will more and more take a big role um but yeah i, I don't i don't really want to go into any more uh, specific things enough. right now it's just uh, 
I might get into trouble for that. <laughs> so um, I suppose my, my probably my last question is um, one of the one of the coolest bikes I've seen in a really long time, and I, I didn't realize it actually worked. Was the um, the electric prototype i can't remember the name of it they had it at all the trade shows there was one at the uk trade show uh that was kind of like a yeah do you, do you know the one i'm on about the one that was in the video the c04 the yeah, electric scooter that, or no it was like a prototype model so it was just like oh a, the, the dc roadster you mean yeah the DC roadster. that's it yeah yeah, yeah. So, is yeah, that yeah. something that comes out of the design department or is that like, how do those projects come about? Is that something that comes from marketing and they're like, we need to design this? Or is this something where you're all sat there and we're like, we think we can do this and it's going to look amazing? I mean, you're busy. You're always in, in, um, how do you say in exchange, you, 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 you work for the same brand. So you have to push the same ideas, but, um, the DC roadster in specific was, um, was a project that uh, developed uh, mainly in our design department, but in collaboration with us, but uh, focused strongly on the design side of what their take was on the on the future of bikes when combustion engines uh, sort of slowly um, go to the background. Yeah, that's the one funky yeah, one, isn't go. it? Yeah, I, I, but I think the thing that blew me away is most of the time when you think about prototype bikes, they're like... I mean, maybe this is a bit of an old school view, but they're really just like a clay bike sat on a sat on a plinth that you're not allowed to touch, and maybe it runs, but it probably doesn't. But I didn't realize that that actually ran, and that was that a, runs, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a bike that worked, if that makes sense. Again, um, I mean, this is this is in times where you have with rapid, rapid prototyping amazing opportunities to print stuff to to quickly come up with with uh, reliable structural parts. I mean, these days you can print aluminium. So you can yeah. like print chassis parts and stuff. It's amazing, and so this definitely helps to to envision these uh, these prototypes mm. so that they're in a rideable fashion. Yeah, that was quite impressive. Um, we uh, we actually uh, from GS Trophy the other year. I, I'm sure you saw it, but they printed out the front panel from the 1200 yep. to 1250. Yeah, yeah. I saw the machine I was printed on. Yeah, that was really cool. Mine worked in the rapid prototyping center and he was involved in the project to get it done, to get the numbers and the names yeah. on it and stuff. Yeah. That must have been someone's, that must have been a lot of work for someone to put every individual number and name in there. And At the end of the day, there's quite good some computing power to get these things done in an okay. automated way. And yeah. yeah. Maybe it's not quite the same as me typing it in on Photoshop, but if you gave me 180 names to type in on Photoshop, I'd be like, oh, really? Do we yeah. have to do that? <laughs> well, that's, um, that's fantastic, man. I am fully out of questions. I think you've answered everything incredibly well. That's very, very kind of you. Thank you very much. Um, for no, your time. Pleasure. Absolutely good to be out here and to be talking to you. Yeah. It was awesome, man. It's, um, it's a subject fantastic. that I think infinitely fascinates me because Obviously, I work so closely with people's end products and tell them how they did I it mean, wrong. <laughs> again, again, it's it's so harsh sometimes for the bike enthusiast to you that you have to keep your mouth shut about so many amazing things that you've written and you've seen and yeah, you can't yeah. share it with, with people you appreciate. And it's that, again, sometimes can be a really tricky side that you've, uh, you know a bit more than, than everybody else in the industry and you're not allowed to, to share the, the excitement about it. But... Mm. Uh, yeah, it's good that every year there's new stuff to to talk about and to to excite others about. Well, I, I imagine it must also be quite frustrating for you sometimes because decisions get made about bikes that are are not necessarily decisions that you might have made, but then someone critiques on. And there, there's so much more going on. I think that's the bit that I always like struggle to. Yeah, you know, it's so easy to sit as an end user and just be like, and we did a whole podcast about it with Chris, uh, where it, it was basically just a discussion about that exact subject of why don't manufacturers just do x but actually the yep. reality of it is so complicated from a bike production yep. point of view and i think that's where my interest in this comes from really because yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as a bike tester i sit there and i go why don't you just make the fork stiffer that make it handle way better yeah, exactly. like whoa well let me tell you but you but can't then, obviously that's a, that's such a how, difficult how, thing isn't it how many customers have ridden dakar and will compare to a level of riding that it's always i mean for us, it's always a challenge sometimes for some engineers that they are such experienced riders. If you just challenge them with build a normal chassis without any fancy stuff on it, and it's like, why? Well, how, what? <laughs> and it's, it's um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
they want to keep pushing and it's yeah it's 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 i absolutely mm. see your point here yeah, yeah uh, uh, well, and i suppose it, like you said for for some for quite a lot of end users for a specific bike that issue that someone like me might have with it doesn't matter do you know if the suspension exactly. is soft or the brakes and yeah. we see it a lot like a i did a, a review of the royal enfield himalayan and 50 percent of the okay. people in the comments that own it are like i agree with you the front brake is terrible and 50 percent of people are like what are you on about i don't care that the front brake is terrible <laughs> <laughs> and for me it's yeah. like uh, you know uh, it's one of those things where i always try to maintain that stance of i've noticed this thing it's up to you to decide yeah. if it's terrible but like, yeah. this is terrible. The brake is awful. Please fix yeah, the brake. Yeah, yeah. And everybody else is like, ah, I don't really care. Um, I, <laughs> that's kind of always an interesting uh, part of my job that I imagine for you also can be really frustrating to watch a bike journalist who is... Yeah. So, but like, then, I mean, you know. as long as you got the chance to... to I mean, I remember that that quote, who was it? We're thinking, I think it was Simon, Har Simon Hargrave from Bike Social gave me that quote, and I quite agree. He said he always said the man with the hardest job in motorcycling is the man in charge of making a 1200 GS better. Because yeah. um, it's, it's such a versatile bike. You have this community of people who want to push it off-road and they need this and that. And uh, why doesn't why isn't it 21, 18-inch wheels? Because it's an enduro. And then you have a majority of people who are happy to have it as a touring bike on road. And they don't mm -hmm. need 21-inch front wheel. Uh, and they don't need longer wheel travel or a higher seat. They just or want it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and to sort of come up with all these different requirements and aspects to a bike to 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 make it into one um yeah one product that just sits right there and and keeps pushing being successful um yeah it's a challenge but it's it's a fun challenge and we accept it yeah i imagine i imagine that is probably the that and the s1000 rr must be two of the most difficult bikes to to do that that process on because also especially with yeah. the 1250 gs you have like you have such a loyal fan base i think this is where harley oh, have probably come unstuck in the last 20 years is the fan base is so yeah. loyal that if you do you know the 12 even with the 1200 when it came out was such a such a jump in how it felt to ride and the whole process yeah. of it that you don't want to alienate too many of those people but you also want to no, make no, the bike no. better that it's must be such a difficult I know, especially with the GS that. having having such a versatile and broad use mm. case of what people use it with a, with a double R at the end of the day. I mean, to be blunt, you could say you could judge all the decisions on does it go a second fast on the racetrack? No, it doesn't. Mm. No, skip it. Yeah, okay, with, yeah. Yes, it's like there's so many bookends that you mm. sort of and that kind of um, interact with each, other, uh, with each other. I could improve the on-road touring, but it would cost on the off-road side. And to keep that balance just right is just, uh, that's quite a challenge, but, uh, but a good one. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I suppose, yeah, that's, uh, that's probably it then. Um, Fantastic. I yeah, I can't Pleasure think to of any more. Pardon? Pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, if any you more too, stuff come up, we'll come up with part two, I'd say. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, and if anyone's Fabulous. got any questions that's watching this, um, if you uh, if you pop them in the comments of this podcast afterwards, I will ask Uli um, and uh, we can write them down. Um, fantastic. Have a, have a great day, man. An absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Man, likewise. See you. Bye. Bye. That was awesome, man.